Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And God did. In the end, the angel of the Lord supplied for the offering, and the knife was held back from Abraham's son Isaac, his only son, whom he loved. There is every reason to believe that the angel of the Lord in that story, who supplies for the sacrifice and spares Isaac, is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Roughly two millennia later, that angel of the Lord took on our human flesh and he came into this world to save us from our sin. Jesus came as God's Son, and as we hear in today's Gospel, he went out into the wilderness, he stood up for the devil and defeated his temptation. And he did that for us as our perfect substitute. And about three years after that, the Son of God and the Lamb of God climbed a hill, a little mountain outside the walls of Jerusalem. And on that Mount Calvary, God the Father did not spare his Son, his only Son, Jesus Christ, whom he loves. On that little mountain of Calvary, God did not hold back the knife from his own son. And in that sacrifice, the righteousness of Jesus Christ becomes yours, and the sacrifice for your sins has been made and completed. And God wants you to know this, and he wants you to know this for certain. So the Holy Spirit inspired St. Paul to tell you this with words, that the sacrifice of God's Son and Lamb is for you. Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Us all is the entire human race. If you are a human being, Jesus' sacrifice that makes his holiness yours and slays your sin, it is for you. And God tells you this not only with the promise of his word, but he also proves it with a resurrection. Christ Jesus, who died and more than that, was raised to life. The Lamb of God was sacrificed for your sins, but he did not remain dead, because a Lamb of God who remains dead is good for really nothing at all. Every once in a while you'll hear someone who hasn't really thought it through say, oh, what does it really matter if Jesus rose from the dead? He was still a great teacher, a great instructor of morality. Bah, nonsense. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He predicted his resurrection. If it did not happen, he's a liar who doesn't even know who he is. Who would want to take morality lessons from someone like that? But Jesus did rise from the dead, and the Bible says he did it to prove that his righteousness is yours, and he is the perfect sacrifice for your sins. God tells you this with his word, and he proves it with Jesus' resurrection. And there is no other love in the world like this divine love. The love of God that does not hold back the knife from his own son, but sacrifices him and does it for you. That is love so powerful that it draws us to God's side in faith, and it is love so powerful that nothing can separate us from that love of God in Christ Jesus. There are, of course, a lot of things that try to. There is this sinfully wrong idea, these, these doubts that pop up in our minds and say, yeah, okay, forgiveness of sins, that's a wonderful gift, I understand it, but I need more than the forgiveness of my sins to make it through this world. 
I need to pay my rent. I need some peace and quiet. I need support from other people. And these doubts start to creep in and they threaten to, to smother this, this faith in God's love. And can that ever happen? Well, it can't. If you listen to the most splendid line of greater to lesser reasoning ever expressed. Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things along with him? God gave you his son and lamb to be the sacrifice for your sins. He has promised you that with his word, and he has proven it with a resurrection. You remember that, and no doubt about having anything you need in this life will separate you from the love of God, and neither will anybody in this world. What then will we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We know there are a lot of people in this world who are opposed to this message of God's love in Christ. People who want to squash faith in Jesus and erase the message altogether. There are people who want to make Christians feel like idiots who believe in fairy tales and they try to embarrass you, humiliate you into abandoning your faith. In many parts of the world, there are people moving in violence against the message of God's love in Christ. But Paul's basic message here is, so what? God is for you. He gave himself as the Son of God, to be the Lamb of sacrifice for your sins. You have to think through the implications of what that means, that God is for you in his Son, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Even if a Christian does have to pay the ultimate price for his faith, what happens? He wins. He gets to leave this messed up world and live in the glory of heaven. What happens if a Christian has to absorb an insult for her faith? She wins. God will reward her in the kingdom of heaven. So this is what happens when God is for you in Christ. He spins bad into good. He even spins the worst possible thing that could happen to a Christian into the best possible thing that could happen to a Christian. If you understand that, no opposition in this world is going to separate you from God's love, and neither will any of the dangers of this world. Could they pry us from God's side? What will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What's the most impressive conquering you've ever done in your life? Ever win a spelling bee? How about employee of the month? You ever win that? Let's set our sights a little higher. You ever conquer labor and bring a beautiful brand new little baby into the world? You ever helped win a battle or a war? You ever in your home conquered conflict and held a family together? When Christ Jesus, God makes you a conqueror on a plane that you could never even imagine. You could never imagine that you're this kind of conqueror unless God revealed it to you, unless he told you in his word. Your Savior Jesus conquered your sin when he died on the cross. He conquered the devil's temptations, as we hear in today's gospel. He conquered death 
when he rose on Easter. Now, through faith in Jesus, you are connected to all that conquering that he did. You have conquered sin, death, and Satan in Christ. So what does that mean for all the dangers of this world? When this world is gone and all those dangers have ended in Christ, you will still live. So the dangers of this world cannot separate you from God's love in Christ. Uh, but there's still one more thing, and it's a big one. Guilt. I think it could be argued that human guilt, if it is not dealt with, is at least as powerful as anything else that we have heard about. But when the Bible uses that word guilt, it has a couple of different senses. One is the punishment that you deserve for your sin. We already dealt with that, because Christ conquers our sin. He took the punishment. But there's the other sense, and it's a very common way people use the word guilt, is that it's just this voice this feeling that keeps popping back up in your mind and in your heart that somehow, some way, God's going to get you for this. You're still going to have to pay. And it's just the regret that you cannot let go of. And the danger of that kind of guilt is that it can lead you to doubt that your sins really are forgiven, that God has let go of the punishment of your sin. Recently, I stumbled on a BBC program called Guilt. It's actually made in Scotland, so closed captioning is required. <laughs> and I'm not endorsing everything about the, this show, Guilt, especially not all the potty mouth and the sexual immorality, but I stuck with it through to the end, and I was glad that I did, because the purpose of the show, Guilt, was not to glorify any of those things. It was to make some statements about these feelings of guilt that people have. One is that they can linger for years or decades after a person has done their dirt, Another is that if they're not dealt with, they can destroy a person in spectacular fashion. But then the show also made the statement that there are ways to at least control it, to cope with these feelings of guilt. One is just the passage of time. Time heals. Another is the support of family and friends. There's redemptive works, like volunteer at a soup kitchen, trying to make up for what you did wrong. There was even commiseration that in order to deal with your, with your guilt, you find some other idiot who has done the same stupid kind of thing that you did, and you realize, hey, I'm not alone. This is just part of the human condition. Right. And all of those things can help to tamp down guilt and control its destructiveness. But what is the real, real cure for these guilty feelings and accusations and sensations that we have? Would it not be to remove the dirt itself that is creating these guilty feelings? to remove the sin that's causing these feelings of guilt. That is the truest cure for guilt. Now, Paul asks a question here, who will bring an accusation against God's elect? You know who loves to accuse? His name actually means accuser, is Satan. And there's this amazing picture in the Bible, in the book of Zechariah, of Satan accusing someone. The picture is in God's courtroom, there's a saint, there's a believer in the Lord. And Satan is like the prosecuting attorney, he's the accuser. And he starts throwing up the dirt, that all, of the, all the dirt that this saint, his name is Joshua, did during his life, accusing him over and over. And it's very instructive how God deals with these accusations that Satan brings up. He does not say, that's not true. When Satan accuses us, when we accuse ourselves, 
It's based on fact. It is, it is things that we have done wrong. Here's another thing the Lord does not do. He doesn't say, oh, come on, devil. Quit being such a downer. Yeah, he did some bad stuff, but he did more good stuff in his life. And besides Satan, that's why pencils have erasers, so we're just going to let this go. No, no. A righteous God never deals with sin that way. The way the Lord deals with it in his courtroom is first he tells Satan to close his mouth. And he tells him why. He says, the Lord rebuke you. For the Lord's own sake, Satan's accusations are shut down. And then the Lord deals with Joshua's sin by draping this robe of righteousness, this perfectly clean garment over the filth of his sin. This is the teaching that the Bible calls justification. God declaring sinners in his courtroom innocent, righteous. And St. Paul writes, God is the one who justifies. The Son of God and the Lamb of God lived righteousness that is yours through faith in him, and he died to wash away all of your sin. He justifies you. So can the guilt of our sin separate us from God's love in Christ? Paul asks, who is the one who condemns? Now please understand, the very next words you are going to hear is Christ Jesus. That is not the answer to the question. For a Christian, the answer to the question, who is the one who condemns, is nobody. And here's why. Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, was raised to life, is the one who is at God's right hand and who is also interceding for us. Jesus worked as God's son and God's lamb to justify you, to make you righteous in God's eyes. One of the reasons Jesus rose from the dead is to prove that's true, but here Paul gives you a second reason. Jesus rose from the dead, and he still lives at the Father's right hand in heaven to intercede for you and for all believers. He is the mediator between you and the Heavenly Father. And Christ pleads for the forgiveness of your sins, which he himself earned. And because Jesus earned that forgiveness, there's only one answer that the Father can give him when he pleads for you, which is yes. So when your feelings of guilt, your own accusatory thoughts, come back on you, you can say to them, I know I am justified. I know that sin is never coming back on me because Jesus is still pleading for me. So guilt, take a hike. You can take a walk. And if your guilt is the clingy type that doesn't take the hint and keeps coming around... <laughs> Eventually, you've got to get a little mean with it. You've got to get a little nasty with your guilt and hit it over the head with your justification. I am righteous in God's eyes. I don't need to feel this way anymore. So the needs of life, the opposition to God's gospel, the dangers of this world, the guilt of what we have done wrong or what we have failed to have done right, none of it can separate us from God's love in Christ. So we can say this together with St. Paul with all our hearts and we can say it together with all of our hearts until the day God calls us home. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powerful forces, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.